to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope everyone is staying safe. My own situation is still up in the air. My school in China has moved to online teaching and I just got the news that that will be extended into the foreseeable future as no one knows quite how long the coronavirus will continue to affect China. As I mentioned in my previous episode, I rerouted my flight to Thailand to wait out the virus and to get more news. I ended up staying in Chiang Mai, which is a northern Thai city. I got to enjoy living in the warm weather while I worked on my syllabus, and I ate a lot of amazing northern Thai food, which is also called Lana Cuisine. I was also able to check out the Land Foundation, which is an art project started by Rick Rick Taravangia. At the time that I visited, the foundation was hosting a solar panel cookout with some local Lana recipes. And it was interesting to see the whole event play out. I learned a little bit more about the foundation, how it started, more about the projects there. And it was nice to just sort of get a feel of this place. I also met two other professors at the event, one from Shanghai and the other from Beijing. And interestingly enough, they had also left China as their own universities had moved to online teaching. And it seems that the longer I stay in Asia, the more the news gets worse and worse. So my original plan to teach remotely while traveling across Asia doesn't seem like such a good idea. I had left for Seoul about a week ago for a quick visit, but just around the time I landed, another outbreak happened in Seoul. And so I'm going to leave Seoul for the U.S. And actually, by the time this episode will be released, I should be over the ocean flying on my way back to New York City and then to my parents' house, and then after that, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, for today's episode, I'm excited to have Joe Elizabeth Stewart. Joe is a poet and theater maker who uses a combination of gesture, voice, and text to make performance that investigates entrapment, borders, and freedom. Joe graduated from Reed College with a BA in English Literature and is currently a cross-disciplinary MFA candidate in a literary arts program at Brown University. I first met Joe at a recent residency I did in Vermont in the winter break between my semesters. While at the residency, I had met a wonderful group of artists of color and was lucky to interview a number of them. Joe was actually the first one I interviewed during my time there. Joe and I got to know each other quite well by doing early morning meditations together before breakfast and taking many snowy walks in the woods. In our discussions, we talk about learning how to be uncomfortable, finding meaning in meaninglessness, and how to move the body in relation to the grammar of a language. I hope you enjoy this. All right, uh, so right now I'm with Joe Elizabeth Stewart. Is it okay if I say Elizabeth? Or yeah, you can say Joe Elizabeth Stewart. <laughs> that was the only way I could find you. On, on, oh, on my website. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot so, of Joe Stewarts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Joe's a poet, theater maker, and uh, right now we are in Vermont, Johnson, Vermont. We're both, we met at uh, this residency, Vermont Studio Center, VSC, and yeah, I've been hanging out with Joe a lot. We've been doing a lot of 
meditations in the morning, <laughs> although she did abandon me the first day. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how are you doing? Good. I just went to my studio before meeting you and pulled a tarot card. You did? Every morning I, I pulled a card. I, I still haven't pulled a card from you. <laughs> yeah, I almost brought it and I should have. That's right. I should have brought it. Do you do it. tarot readings? No, not formally. Oh, okay. I think because I don't think I have enough confidence to really do it. I mean, uh, I would do it with you, like I do it alongside you, but I wouldn't want to like formally give you a reading. Anyways, I pull a card in the mornings and... What do you do with the card? I don't, the beginning, I feel like it's a part of my practice to pull a card after, especially after sitting meditation with between that we do together. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I basically journal and then I spend like 30 minutes just kind of writing in my personal journal, oh, which good. doesn't necessarily turn into poetry ever, but yeah, I end up reflecting on the card and on my morning and mm -hmm. maybe on some dreams mm -hmm. and that's how I start my day. Mm. I did my first tarot reading a year ago. With who? Someone I found online. I think I was trying to figure out if I wanted to go to China. And oh. so I was like, I didn't really didn't know. And then I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll just like go. Someone online though? No, like I found someone online. Like I went oh. on Facebook and then oh. I was like looking for tarot readings and found someone who like. I have a very good tarot reader if you ever are in New York. In New York? Yeah. Okay. Um, But, and so then you ended up going. Yeah, yeah. The woman didn't tell me, but I think like I, it was. I think I used I used the tarot reading as a sort of, I guess, therapy, just yeah. so I could like say my thoughts and like, since we're talking out loud, out loud. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think as I mentioned earlier, as I get older, I'm like more open to the idea of therapy. Though I haven't yeah. gone officially. But therapy is your first. I mean, um, tarot. Tarot is your first step. <laughs> what was I first? Step? It's my gateway. My gateway drug. <laughs> Gateway into therapy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so um, why don't you talk about mm. yeah, where were you yes. born? Mm. Where did you uh, grow up? Okay. I was born in Whittier, California. People, when they think of Whittier, normally think of Richard Nixon. Is that where he's from? That's where he... Okay, I don't want to give misinformation, <laughs> but <laughs> that's at least where he went to high school. I'm uh, quite certain that he went to Whittier High School. Again, fact check this. Whittier High School and then Whittier College. Uh -huh. And I think he was like the president of his class. So he's like maybe. really from Whittier. I think he's, I think so. Uh, are they proud I of? I could be wrong. Do people talk well, about Well, I'm it? pretty sure there's a statue on the campus. <laughs> 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 so I feel like people either know Whittier because of Nixon or they know Whittier because of um, the college, which is a Quaker school. Mm. And I went to a Quaker elementary school yeah. attached to the college. That's I should, where I grew I up. I should know these facts. No. About Nixon. Oh, no. Oh, I did a video on him. Oh, right. Yeah. And I was like so overwhelmed by all the information that I like didn't do any of it. And then I did like the lazy art shortcut. Uh, yeah. Which is what? What's the lazy art oh. shortcut? Oh, like I never showed you the piece. I can show you the piece after. But basically I filmed myself in a Nixon mask. And I was like so stressed out because normally when I film things, things tend to be not so charged. Mm. Right. Like even like the Michael Myers mask. Like it's still just like an empty mask. Like yeah. I could put whatever I want, but Nixon's Nixon, right? It's yeah. Like Watergate, US president. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like kind of stuck. And then I was like, maybe I'll do research. And then I got overwhelmed by the research because I was like, just like 
hundreds of biographies, I hundreds know. of history channel stuff. Yeah. I could, so then I just like, I compiled a list and I was like, I can't do this. So I just like took a two year like hiatus. hiatus. <laughs> and then like my solution was like trying, I decided, I just wrote this narrative where I embodied Nixon and like somehow like the absurdity of me embodying Nixon and I use that to like, because he opened up dialogue with China for the first time in like hmm. a long time. And so it was like me trying to understand my Chinese mm. heritage is just as absurd as me trying to embody Nixon. Mm, mm. So I wrote this entire... Oh, like, why, why is that? Because you are just as estranged from yeah, China as, as you as are from Nixon. Nixon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't like really do any research on Nixon. I just sort of... <laughs> it was like a, you know... Like lazy artist decision and like led to hopefully a creative, interesting path. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's yeah. good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Okay. So I grew up in Whittier. What was that like? Is it a small town? It's funny. I, I've been thinking so much about my childhood recently and I never do. Never do. <laughs> okay. I, I haven't right. historically uh-huh. because I have forgotten like large swaths of it. I have a kind of weird like blackout hmm. around certain parts of my childhood. So, but recently because I started working with a new therapist who's really into talking about my childhood, I've been, <laughs> I've been. Do you get hypnotized to remember things? No, she's actually, she's actually explicitly against hypnotism. Oh. <laughs> Just so you know, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but, um, anyways, so I've been thinking about my childhood and, and I, I, so it's Whittier is on the outskirts of LA County. Mm -hmm. It's very near Orange County. I think it might be like the last city before you get, you, you kind of are officially outside of LA County and into Orange County. It felt like a small town to me growing up. Like Uptown Whittier is a part of Whittier that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. It's like the historic part of Whittier. I'm Mm -hmm. doing this in air quotes. And and I grew up in that part of Whittier. It's like right at the bottom of all these canyons that I've been writing a little bit about recently. But Turnbull Canyon, Sycamore Canyon. So I spent a lot of time kind of wandering those canyons as a kid. I like walked everywhere because I didn't get my license until I was 22 or 21. So I spent a lot of time walking and that also makes a space feel, a city feel small, don't you think? Because you get to know it in a very kind of, in it's like little minute yeah. details rather than in a like on its highways. Yeah. You know, I, I never really got a map of LA in my head ever, even though I grew up there. I think most people don't. Really? People are like, where do you, like, oh, what highway? I'm like, I I, th- I think I, it's embarrassing, kind of. I don't even really have a good sense of like, where. Where the 101 is. Yeah, honestly, I don't. <laughs> it's the 10. I, I kind of don't. People who drive through <laughs> LA have a better sense of direction than yeah. I do. Yeah. I have a sense of like my canyon, that not mine, but the canyon <laughs> and like, you know, the all the little yeah. streets where my friends lived. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I went to school in high school outside of my school district. Mm. None of this is that interesting, but. Mm. It's all part of it. Yeah. <laughs> And then, yeah, and then you were a sports athlete and then you went, <laughs> yeah. then you uh, went to college in um, Oregon, right? Portland, yeah. Portland. How was that? Yeah. So I, 
went to Port, went to Reed College, and it was hard. It was hard, but I went there because they gave me the most funding, which is important. Which is important. I remember I had like such a difficulty deciding. I, it was basically like East versus West because I was either going to go to Bard or I was going to go to Reed, uh. and. I had my this English teacher who who adored me and I who I loved also Miss Blevins Margie Blevins, really thought that I needed to go to the East Coast huh. for some reason and I loved her and wanted to I don't know maybe she was a kind of a mother figure and yeah. I wanted to do what she wanted yeah but it, Bar didn't give me as much money and yeah. anyways I ended up going to read and I met really important people there in my to my life still and so that I'm very grateful to read for for those people but I I the impression that I have of the school is it's actually even though it's have you heard that much about Reed I just know it's like a if you, I think it was like a hippie sort yeah, of school Yeah people are like it's a hippie school yeah. they do drugs yeah. like that's usually what people say about it Yeah people are naked or something All those things are true people are <laughs> naked people do drugs it's not more so than any other place I don't think yeah. but Yes, but also somehow it's extremely white, of course, and it's also extremely, it felt like extremely hetero, and people were very, like, hemmed in somehow. What do you mean hemmed in? Like, um... Like clothes off? Hemmed in? I felt, I'll speak for myself and say I felt really hemmed in Mm. by, like, the kind of intellect that was revered Mm. in that space. I found pockets of places where I could... Or that was like an alternative to the sort of like um, imposing white male intellect. But by and large, that was what was cool and Mm. interesting. And I really, um, I kind of fell into that pattern too, to some degree. And I, I had a really hard time. Yeah. Luckily, I had some good teachers and that's like, thank God for that, I guess. And did you go in as... English with like you were going to be an English yeah, major. Yeah, which I I regret. I you think, regret really? I think so because uh-huh. I always I I'm such an avid reader and and I always was whether I studied English or not I was always going to read mm. like voraciously. So I feel like I went in and I just did the thing that I always would have done just like triple like triple yeah. Trip with the, triple the amount of effort yeah. whereas I would have loved to go and study I should. I felt. I always think I should have studied religion or really? theater or. Religion. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by organized <laughs> religion. Are you? Are you religious? No, I'm. I feel deep. I'm deeply spiritual. Okay. And I. I really enjoy being in places that other people have decided are sacred. Yeah. And I'm curious about it. Mm. I think it would have been really interesting to yeah. su- to study religion. Mm-hmm. But I, anyways, I studied English, so I, I read a bunch of books, which is great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And I like got, you know, I, I deepened my, my poetry practice while I was there with, uh, Samia Bashir who was teaching and, um, I studied French, which was good for me. I think even though, you know, whatever I I should have studied Spanish, I think, but I studied French and I, 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 that was good for me, I think too attempt to learn another language. Yeah. Um, Did you succeed? I succeeded to some degree, yeah. (laughs) I spent a year trying to learn German. It's hard. It slipped past me. (laughs) Like during my year in Berlin, I I went five days a week 
to school to learn to learn German. And yeah, I yeah, it was. I tried. I really did try. I believe you. <laughs> so yeah, and then so you were always writing poetry, or did you do a whole wide variety of writings? I was, I was writing poetry mainly. And reading a lot of poetry and a lot of novels. I've always read a lot of fiction, although I've never had any interest in writing fiction. I attempted to once, and it was a disaster. Awful fiction writer. <laughs> I, I this is the hemmed in feeling again. I think I just the progression of time and how mm. how in novels you are so wedded to it, or I felt so wedded to mm-hmm. it at least at the time. Certainly, there are a lot of experimental novelists who aren't, but. I like didn't know how to get out of it and I felt trapped and I did some really yeah. bad writing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like a late late comer to like reading and everything. Really? Yeah. It wasn't until like after What book like shook you up? It wasn't a specific book. I'm trying to think. Well, my mom always wanted us to read, my brother, my sister and I. And I w- she'd be like, You have to read this many books for like the summer or whatever. And she gave you a number. Yeah, or something like that. I, mean, just, I think I should probably would do that if I had kids. But <laughs> but like I think once I went to college, I didn't read as much or I read what was ob- obligatory of me during during mm-hmm. classes. Yeah. And then when I, for some reason, I think when I was in L.A. by myself and I was like. How old were you? 25 or 6. And I was like, I took some time off to make art and I had a lot of. Like I saved up money from freelance stuff. I was doing freelance web development at the time. And so I had all this free time. And then I just like was needed breaks from doing art or just to fill up the time or trying to think. Mm. And I found reading as a way to like think. Yeah, totally. Since then I've like got a huge book collection that's stored away. Oh. That I'm waiting to eventually have a place to yes. unleash, unleash them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to like absorb just to like be open I mean I think there's a lot a lot to say for reading kind of astutely and with intending to understand to kind of I don't know look at the craft Mm -hmm. but I really enjoy just I it's definitely an escape for me I think it's definitely operates as an escape often a place a place for my mind to like unravel and relax yeah and in poetry, I, I came even later. I think mm. I met a few poets at the residency, and they told me about this poet poem a day. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. So I've been like, so I signed up for I think like um, two years ago, and I've been like getting a poem every day, and it's mm-hmm. like slowly reading in. Cool. Oh, you sent me one. Yeah, yeah. Tardy, yeah. Tardy <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like I feel like that sort of allowed me because I still mm. I don't not sure if I still understand poetry, but I like. How sometimes certain word combinations jump out. Yeah, and, that's that. I think that's what it is. I yeah. don't. I think understanding is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> like understanding with a capital U. You yeah. know, people like. I I don't know. I have like feelings about the word understanding. I think. Yeah, the well, the reason I say understanding though is like, I do think about my understanding of art. And how mm-hmm. comfortable I am mm-hmm. in the non-understanding of art. And I do sometimes mm-hmm. when, I, when I listen to like music and like listen to like poetry and sometimes books, I like think about if I were to be in that specific field the same way that I am in art, mm-hmm. the way that I allow understanding to actually mean something. 
Mm. You know? No, what do you mean? Understanding to mean something. The lack of understanding. Oh, the lack of how understanding. How the lack of understanding can actually mean something and mm. how to navigate that and like what it means mm-hmm. for a particular, especially in terms of art, like when something is fuzzy in its meaning, yeah, absolutely. how to approach that and how to yeah. appreciate that too even. Well, I think it's like practice of learning how to be uncomfortable yeah. because not understanding something is like, a, feels like this searching and you are squinting and you're trying to get, you're trying to, sometimes I think when people are really desperately trying to understand something, what they're trying to do is find a glimmer of it within their own memories that looks like what they're looking at so that they can say, ah, I understand. There's something in my experience (laughs) in my body that resonates with what I'm seeing. And now I'm going to now I'm going to kind of um, align them to myself. I'm going to align them and sort of impose my meaning onto this yeah. thing, image or whatever or line yeah. or something. Yeah. And, and I, and yes, I think it's really um, important to remain in a space of not understanding for a little bit longer. And, and even just to see those impulses to, to sort of collapse experiences mm-hmm. onto each other yeah. just to notice that you're doing it. Yeah. And when is it actually useful and when isn't it? Yeah. 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 Poetry is a good. I think that a lot of people feel that way about poetry. And what's so interesting is yeah. that I think that when I'm writing, when I've, I struggled a lot in college, especially, but still it's a daily thing to try not to impose meaning, like really clear meaning on what what was com- like what was coming mm. out. And especially initially in the early drafts, like I'm not saying that I'm trying I'm creating meaningless poems, but I but I think I feel really moved, for instance, by a lot of race theory that I'm reading right now. And like sometimes Okay, I would I I want to talk about this later, but or you can finish your thought. You, you I'll finish, finish my thought, Sorry. but this is, this is, I, for instance, okay, this piece by Denise, uh, God, I can't say her middle name, oh, Ferreira da Silva. I read that, I read that. You On Heat? It. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, I sent it to you. Sent it to oh, me. Yeah, wait, we can, let's talk about it later. Okay. But I was reading about, just, I've read this essay many times, okay. and sometimes I think when I read something that I, like this that I'm really moved by, that's just like, you know, the, the dense that's such a dense idea. That I like that's also one page. It's I know it's an incredible feat. <laughs> like you sent me, I was like, okay, like I started it. It's one page. And then I was like, okay, like this would be like fourteen. <laughs> I was expecting fourteen pages of this, and then like no. I turned a page and I was like two lines. It's, I was like, oh, one, it's done. <laughs> isn't that wild? But she really, she really, it's she really achieves something in one page. But in any case, sometimes I have the impulse to to like take this idea and then, and somehow make a poem that encapsulates it or something. Uh, I'm like imposing this meaning, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, before even the language comes, I want it to encapsulate this thing that I feel so moved by. Anyways, it's, I feel like it's taken a lot of energy to try to counter, counter that, that Mm. impulse because it's not actually, um, because you know you find meaning through a lot of meaninglessness yeah. <laughs> often. Yes, yes. <laughs> my know. entire art practice, <laughs> grasping at strands of nothingness. But also, my friend Imani was who I live with was quoting 
another poet who she saw talk and who's she's was telling me this in our kitchen. We share, we share an apartment and she was saying that this poet described poetry as, um, it was like putting language under pressure. Hmm. And I think that I, I really appreciated that. I think that, yeah. What does putting language under pressure mean? You think Uh, the way I read it is like, well, like a poet poem is like language pared down so much that there's a tension that happens simply even sometimes between like two words or three Mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. And so the pressure is like the tension of how much meaning you can put in the most minimum amount of words. Yeah. And there's pressure there. I think that's also like the pressure I feel when I read a poem because I'm like, I just read something that's six lines that I also think in my head, probably not all the time, but that, that, that this poet spent probably like way more time about (laughs) these like six lines than I did when I write some garbage, like for like five pages for like some proposal, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so like, and I feel like because of that knowledge, there's a tension probably for both the poet who's constructing it and also for the reader who knows that. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think also under pressure could mean for those of us who speak English, like putting our particular mm. language under pressure mm. and like the grammars of our language. And I'm thinking particularly of this book, Zong, and the, and the author of that book. I think they were Nurbesi, I think maybe you pronounce her name, but okay. So in Zong by M. Nurbesi Philip, she talks about in her notanda putting pressure on the English language mm-hmm. and yeah, the grammars of the English language and, and the assumptions made and like the threads or I don't know, like ghosts, ghosts of colonialism mm. and, and how we use language. And so when she's putting pressure, so she's, she's, what she does is that she's, the Zong is, is, she uses her a primary material, which is this insurance document. Okay. When so Zong is a boat in which captured enslaved people, and they midway through they were like ran out of water or something, and so they they threw a bunch of the captured mm. people over overboard, and then they tried to collect insurance monies. <laughs> For for the yeah. for losing cargo, whatever mm-hmm. at the end of it. Anyway, so she's looking at the document, the insurance document, and I think I guess that this all comes back to the meaninglessness thing because the how how she puts the language under pressure, it ends up sort of dismantling a certain kind of grammar, mm. you know that the kinds of grammar that makes black bodies, for instance, into these, into cargo, into like non-being. And thus, and thus sometimes that when you look at it on the page, like what, what it, what it turned into for her, if you ever look at song, it doesn't necessarily have like, maybe it doesn't necessarily have meaning in the way that you would look for it normally in a poem because the words are ripped apart or they don't, they don't necessarily even look like language, Eng- the English language anymore. Is she taking the words from the insurance document to form poems? Yeah, okay. yeah. So she only uses the, okay. the language in the in yeah. the on the document. Yeah. But in any case, I just that's really crazy. Oh, it's so uh, gorgeous and and 
you should really look yeah. at it. But, but I think that, I think that sometimes there's meaning that has to come through and it doesn't necessarily take the shape of this, la- this language that we use yeah. that, that organizes yeah. meaning in this way that, that actually can be quite violent, you know, and disappear people mm-hmm. and hide trauma. So I don't know, whatever. I think that there's a lot to say for kind of relinquishing our constant drive to make meaning, you know, because it's, there's. Things aren't so clear. Things aren't so clear. Meaning is like a captive sometimes. Yeah. 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 Anyways. No, no, no. I mean, that that was really, I mean, yeah, I have to read Zong. That was really beautiful. I feel awful because it's such an incredible book and I'm like really kind of slap, you know. That was an awful description, but you'll find it and you'll you'll find it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I also, uh, but I also like, like you mentioned, the ghosting of the language or the the tendrils, the tendrils of the documents Mm -hmm. seeping into the language. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then also I was thinking you were talking about how you tend to like, like you read that article and then you wanted to write a poem about it. Mm. And I was looking at the, the works that you have online and mm. how it seemed like also there's a lot of them are like sourced from somewhere else mm. there you or at least in the description you've like wrote that's how true. the pieces were inspired from a very specific thing like from like a nina simone um song yeah or, God, no. or wb du bois yeah. also and then you then proceeded to make a sort of performance piece a song or a mm-hmm. video or mm-hmm. installation from it and so I see these different strands that you're doing in terms of like trying to capture these moments. Mm-hmm. What's your process for deciding how you go about to f- whatever the final process product is? Cause not always poetry. Right. And it's, it, I think it, what, the most interesting thing about your, your practice, I think practice is such an elitist word. Yeah. Is it? Oh God. <laughs> yeah. My practice. It, yeah, sure. <laughs> Except that, you know, it has such, but isn't it lovely it to think about, Okay, let's say, um, let's, you know, practice is sort of like pretending. Yeah. That's really lovely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I forget who I read this. Maybe it was in Undercommons. I forget. I forget who, but I think someone was like, practice is also really a, like obnoxious word because it implies that the work that real people are doing isn't work. You know, like, or like, mm. you know, especially, or like, you know, if you are like a day laborer and then, then you got artists who are like pretending to be working and calling it a practice. And just like <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's not, let's not no, let's I throw use, it out. No, no, I use it too. It just, I'm just, I'm just like, I'm calling out my own. No, totally. Yeah. I hear you. It is elitist. I don't know what to call it, my, but yeah, but your work. Your work, yeah. Yeah, yeah your sure. work. Um, I, I do love to pretend though. So yeah. I can say it, my, my pretending. But the, <laughs> the entirety of your work, right? It's like interdisciplinary and it's not simply poetry. And No. Yeah. Could you talk about how you went from poetry to all these different fields? Because I know you are, you're part of like a dance, you do dance, you do singing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I didn't realize we also had like a three channel video. Yeah. I should show you it. It's, I, I like that piece. Okay. So Yes. I was was writing poetry all through college and also as a child. And oh, random question: Do you yes. have your first poem? Oh God, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't even know what that would be. <laughs> if you had it, 
Uh, no, I have no memory of that. I used to be a part of like a writing group for inner city kids uh, in LA uh, okay. and probably it is, and they made an anthology of poems. It was called right girl. Shout out to right girl. How do you spell right? Right. Like W R I T E. It's okay. called, I don't know if it's still a thing, but that was like a, the group. The, the So there probably is like my first poem and, and an anthology of right girl. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to find it. Um, but it'd be better if we didn't find it, probably. Um, but all along, I, I all along, even though I, I was writing and I was mainly an athlete, like you said, as a young person, I also was always singing. And I, I, sometimes, I sometimes forget that. Like I Do was singing in the shower? Uh Sure. But I mean, like organized, uh, like uh, I was, uh, I was in choir yeah. for like all of my young life. Uh, I was, I took singing lessons and piano lessons uh, and I was always auditioning for musicals in junior high. And I remember my first play in elementary school. And, and so I, it, but it somehow was like in this backtrack in my mind, like, uh, Oh, I'm not good at that. So like, it wasn't really important. It's something. not important. It's something that somehow I, even on autopilot always showed up for, like in order to go to choir through high school, I had to show, it was a zero period. So I had to be there at 7am and I lived an hour away. Jeez. So it was like a really big commitment and I did it every day for four years. But you didn't even consider it. But I didn't parts. think that it was in, I didn't think it was a big deal mm. or I had anything to do with me almost. I just did it because I liked it. Mm. And I, for no other reason, I never got a good part. Like I feel like the person who was the head of my choir, I remember one time I was like, stop typecasting me. Like, please <laughs> let me just be a person in this play. Anyways, that never happened. I never was a person, really. Or, or a tree, <laughs> a rock. I know I was a person. I just was always, I don't know, relegated to the back. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so tree or rock? <laughs> I wasn't a rock, but um, like into the woods. There was like a tree. I wasn't into the woods, and I was a tree. <laughs> you, were- <laughs> you know the, the grandma yeah, tree? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, awful! It's totally true. Oh gosh, I yeah, I remember that song still. But um, anyways, so but once I left college, I I ended up working at a publishing house. Mm -hmm. I ended up working at FSG, and I was working on the poetry list with Jonathan Glossy, who's the publisher of the company, and he worked he'd worked on the poetry list as well. And meanwhile, so it was my first desk job, right? Where I'm like doing the whole nine to five thing. And I end up, you know, being, getting really exhausted and looking towards like other ways of nourishing myself um, because I was just getting so burnt out on poetry, reading manuscripts like that. And I wasn't reading for pleasure anymore, really. And I was like writing copy, which is just like a really horrendous way to mean? engage with poetry. It's like, you know, the, you know, like the back of a book uh, that says like so-and-so spectacular, it's blood, earth shattering. <laughs> Everyone's earth shattering. <laughs> I had to write that oh. for like a bunch of manuscripts oh, okay. and would you it's actually sort of read, soul killing. Would, would you actually read? Yeah, I would a, read a, them. Okay. But in any case, it's not. It doesn't even really matter. It's sort of like a form that you just learn yeah. mm-hmm. how to how to say things in the right way. And yeah. it's sort of meaningless. Yeah. So anyways, I was looking for things that had a little bit more meaning, speaking of meaning. And 
I ended up going back to dance classes and mm-hmm. and singing and I and I started taking workshops with Meredith Monk's ensemble, which I was not affiliated with yet. And kind of there's a really rich downtown, like experimental dance theater scene in New York. So I kind of got enmeshed into that. Um, And were you also dancing always or? Oh, a good question. Well, because so I, okay, in, in the chorus, I, if you were in chorus, you had to be in the musicals. So there was Uh, a part of me that was always, I was, I was always in musicals. So I was like on stage, I was on stage often. My brothers were dancers. Dancing was like a really big part of being a person in our house. I then I took an intensive dance course when I was living in Paris in college. Oh, you did you did you did a study abroad in Paris? Yeah, I did when I was learning French. How was that? Um, <laughs> I didn't know you did that. It was great because I had my first bookstore job, oh, and that yeah. was so such a incredible way to get to know That's place. So Parisian. <laughs> Working at a bookstore. I'm like a big cliche. <laughs> and then I and then I also started taking these all these dance classes. I had to take like a bunch of dance classes uh, in order to I had to take dance history and I had to take ballet and modern and mm-hmm. I took African and I was constantly dancing and it was This is all in great. Paris. This is all in Paris. Sounds I, fun. It was so fun. It was so I'm just imagining good. Joe in college in Paris at a bookstore and then just dancing. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And and doing very little writing. And, um, <laughs> but it was a great way to engage language in my body yeah. to learn because I was in these classes with these teachers who didn't speak English and my French was awful when I got there. It was terrible, terrible French speaker. And I was really ha- having a hard time and these people were just yelling at me in French. And, and it was great though because because what they wanted was a bodily reaction like they weren't just yelling at me like hey wake up they were telling me to do something with my body and I had to figure it out mm-hmm. you know in this weird translation between the two of us and so sometimes so sometimes I would just kind of like you know move my body around sort of aimlessly like oh are you trying to tell me to stand up straight or do you want my right arm up or what's happening and then sometimes I'd get it sometimes I wouldn't and then they would come to me and they'd be speaking to me and they'd move my body for me and oh, say, this is what body. I want oh, you to do, wow. <laughs> you know, play or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, um, it was like a really important experience for me in terms of, of figuring out how language and the parts of speech even related to me moving across the floor in mm. phrases like yeah. in, and, and, and not necessarily, and it wasn't what I, what I want to be clear about is it, it wasn't that I was, I, I kind of am not that into dancing that is, is supposed to illustrate something like, oh, I'm going to, oh, here's a line of poetry. It's like the tree grew up tall and, and then I'm going to act, act it out. Yeah. No, I hate that. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but what is the other kind of, where are the, where, where in the grammar of a line, like how does my body, how does my body engage like the trapdoors and grammar, like yeah. the commas and the M dashes uh, and the spaces, like the the windows yeah. th- that you can peer through, like where that is such a thing that happens in space and mm-hmm. theater, in dance. I think that I think that poetry is a really fantastic way to look at making theater. Mm-hmm. The way that poetry moves, 
um, you know, stanza to stanza, like is a really great way to think about how yeah. to make story hmm. and character. If you're, especially if you're like me and you're allergic to the progression of time <laughs> in happening in an orderly fashion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just saw, yeah, I just saw this, I was watching this documentary about the history of film and I was like, I think some Swedish guy, but he was mm. saying like, yeah, it's an interesting line. He said like, he finds it funny that Americans are so obsessed with the structure of story mm-hmm. and this arc and rise. And he's like, stories don't exist in real life. Stories are something that we create to make sense mm. of the path that we're kind of going. But in actuality, your path doesn't have <laughs> yeah. any arc. It just happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he was sort of like, you know, espousing like movies should sort of represent the sort of meanderingness of yeah. our path that. You know, totally. People don't like to meander that much, no. but maybe they do. Maybe I don't know. I won't speak for people in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't want to. Uh, no, pigeonhole people. No, I will <laughs> not, not at all. No, I will not do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So then, yeah. So that you were dancing in Paris, and so yeah. So I think eventually. So okay, I'll say what what really. Um, was an important landmark for me was meeting Lanny Harrison. Who's that? So Lanny, my Lanny Harrison and Deborah, my beloved teachers. Um, and Reed. No, no, oh, that Reed. This is post. These are like teach life. Okay. These are like human okay. teachers that you encounter yeah. in your life. <laughs> Mentors. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I started taking workshops with the house foundation, which is Meredith Monk's company. Okay. And in Lanny New in New York City. I first encountered her at Reed, actually, when I saw her perform for the first time. Meredith Monk. Yes. Okay. But it wasn't until I got to New York that I took the workshop. And um, Lanny, a long, long, long time friend of Meredith's and also a, a original member of the company, teaches. She doesn't always teach, but I happen to be there at during a workshop in which she was teaching. And so she... Um, she, I don't want to pigeonhole Lanny because she's a lot of incredible things, but some things that I know about her is, um, that she spent a long time making these kind of one woman shows. And I think while, and after she was working in Meredith's company, I think she has some clown training. She's just like, she's like a physical actress. She does kind of physical theater. I don't know if that's exactly what she would call it Mm -hmm. in her own language. And it's also embedded in Buddhism, actually, in her Buddhist practice. Mm. And so it's kind of, she thinks she thinks about movement and improvisation as a kind of like moving meditation. But she, and, and it's through this sort of process of like moving with images that she starts to create characters and then she'll kind of create these whole, these beautiful shows. And she's one of my favorite performers I've ever met. She's like one of the most intelligent performers and improvisers I've ever witnessed. And she's beautifully statuesque and she's hilarious. She's like, she's hysterically funny and she's a wonderful teacher. And I met her at a workshop and then she invited me to come work with her in her own kind of workshop that she does, not privately so much, but it's not... She doesn't like um, invite everyone, invite everyone mm-hmm. but she's had a lot of the same people come for many, many, many years and she's hosted it in the, in the West Village, various different studios. It used to be at Shambhala Center and now it's at someplace else. But um, 
I started working with her and she, and when I got into that workshop, so, okay, so here I am, I have poetry under my belt. I have some movement under my belt and some theater and some dance mm -hmm. and some song, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's all kind of like, uh, it's percolating. It's just all percolating. Yeah. And then I get to Lanny's class. And so, and how, how it starts is you, you start with sitting meditation and then you do this thing called the snake. And I can explain that later. It's an exercise, it's an improv exercise that you do as a group. You do some warm ups, and then she'll do basically like the big exercise. And every, all of this also is accompanied by live music, which is really, really incredible. And the musicians are also improvising. They're watching huh. the movers and yeah. they're improvising and in conversation with the movers. And we call them the world. The musicians, the world. <laughs> the musicians oh. are the world. Okay. And, um, Anyways, she basically, she'll, she'll bring different kinds of cards, images, language to prompt you and everyone will pull one. And then she'll give you, she'll give you an exercise that sometimes you'll do as a solo or as a duet, as a trio in, in this space. So you burn this, imagine like a big open space um, with lots of light. And sometimes we're in like a semicircle and the musicians are a part of that semicircle. And I think I pulled like, wolves i don't remember something about wolves this was like years ago it was an image that had something about wolves on it i i honestly i can't even remember what the prompt was but i remember it was a solo and i stood up and i was somehow having to take this image and create a character and sometimes it sometimes it means that we use some language sometimes we don't use language we just use sound or song and movement we work in stills, like there's a lot of stills and repetition. Mm -hmm. And so she just gives you some tools and then mm -hmm. you go up and you improvise. Okay. Okay. So imagine that. Are you imagining it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I imagine Joe embodying a wolf or something. Yeah. Like and that. I honestly, the first time I did it, I sort of blacked out of fear. Like I was so terrified. I, I'd, be, I'd be afraid. Too. Yeah. I was so horrified by the whole thing. But, but it was like it somehow all of those prompts just. It sort of like hit the sweet spot in mm. in in all of the the tools that I'd already been working yeah. on, like this idea of of the line and poetry and how it relates to itself. Like I feel like it to me it means that I I understand working in these um, associative like in these like associative patterns. And so I you know if you pick up a card that says wolves or something. I, I, it's not like I just went up and did doggy ears or yeah. something, but I, I, you do it and then, and then you follow, at least for me, I follow a series of associations mm -hmm. and sometimes that comes out in language in a still, I might say something to the audience and then maybe it, then there's maybe like a series of a, a kind of like a dance. And I remember, I remember doing almost, I remember someone asking me if I was learned capoeira Okay. Afterwards, I must have been like really activated. Jumping all over the I don't know place. What the hell I was flips. doing? <laughs> but, but I was. But in any case, the point is that it somehow distilling a character, being associative, moving from a place of instinct, letting language come and go, not having to really stick with story, almost just having it be a portrait. Mm. My the portrait of whatever the wolf or whatever it was, yeah, really just made so much sense to me. Like nothing had made so much sense in my life. <laughs> and that sounds so beautiful. And it, it, it was, and it, it, honestly, it was a profound moment for me because 
And then I was with this community of people who were there. It was this, it was perfect because I needed encouragement. I Mm. think I needed the support because it was something that was so unknown to me. It felt really good, but it was extremely unknown. Right after college too. Right after college. And I, and I needed the encouragement that this community provided. And Lanny is an incredible teacher. And I think she just knew how to drive me forward. That's amazing. And I, then I started to create theater and it was, but it's theater that's really embedded in it, that has improvisation as a part of it. It's a deeply associative. It's all about deepening character and not necessarily story. Mm-hmm. Although story is a part of a part of it, but it's not. I just I'm not so attached to it. Yeah, and it all kind of somehow it kind of just started to fall into place mm-hmm. as something that I could do kind of cyclically, cyclically, like I could work on my poetry and then I could move that into the dance studio. I could bring Mm. in music. I could, you know, drop back into the language. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so did it become your job, this dance studio? Okay. So no. So that was this workshop and I started to go there every week and it's basically the whole year except for the summers and even in the summer, sometimes she teaches in upstate New York and I would go and I'd visit her and I would... The Hudson Valley, upstate New York? She teaches in East Meredith at mm-hmm. where she lives okay. out of her beautiful barn. And we would do performances together there. I would... I, it's one of a highlight of my life is performing <laughs> with Lanny and Deborah Gladstein, who's... In a barn. In a barn. Upstate it's the, one of the most yeah. wonderful performances of my life. <laughs> it's like a, a night of improvisation where we all had picked these characters uh. and the improv was split up. We we knew what each, like the, like the landscape of each improv, like there were some directions, but, and we, this musician came and yeah. it was a beautiful evening. Mm. But anyways, I was still working at this publishing house, but after this started to coalesce for me, I quit publishing and there was a period where I was, had a bunch of odd jobs. I was working with librarians for a while and doing things, but eventually I made it into this teaching. So what I, someone hired me to teach dance, which is sort of incredible because I have no formal training. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's not that I lied. I didn't lie, <laughs> but It's just like sometimes you say things to people and they believe you. Like I was like, I could teach dance. And they're like, okay, great. You know, they didn't ask for any evidence. (laughs) So Evidence seems to be overrated these days. (laughs) I think I can teach dance. No, I'm not saying about you. Despite the fact that I have no formal training. I can teach it in a very particular way. Uh, It's not going to be ballet. Yeah. But once I got there, I thought I was going to teach dance. And then basically... They were like, well, really what we need is a theater teacher. Okay. Which you can do. Which I didn't, again, I don't have any formal training. I've done a lot of theater. I had spent several years working with Lanny at this point. But again, you know, people think that, you know, I don't have like a, whatever. I don't have blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Masters of directing and theater. But I said yes. And I ended up teaching. So I taught at this K through 12 school for three years theater it was really like a movement theater class in my mind. And I learned and I mean, and then I, it was me teaching myself. So then I had three years of like teaching myself and also teaching kids and putting on a billion shows a year. It felt like a billion. It was really like three or four, but um, of a bunch of per- small performances with, yeah. with different ages, kids, like sometimes really young, sometimes high school kids. So there was like a little bit more sophisticated, but 
Um, honestly, I loved the little ones, though. They are very sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. More honest. Yeah. Very honest. Yeah. And, and as I was teaching, I um, that's when Lanny, who's Meredith's like best friend, one of Meredith's best friends, had suggested when Meredith said she was going to have auditions, they have like closed auditions, so invitation. They were looking. She asked Lanny, who's like her resident you know, dancer friend, not resonance. She's a lot of dancer friends, but a trusted friend of hers who works, who knows dancers. If she knew any dancers who would, who might be a good fit, fit yeah. in the company. And so I got recommended and I, I went to the audition. And so while I was teaching, I got hired by Meredith and I ended up teaching three days a week and then rehearsing with Meredith yeah. for this new show. Right. Meredith Monk. Meredith Monk. Yeah. yeah. And were your parents worried about you during this time of like <laughs> going from publishing to teaching to dancing? I have no idea. Oh you, oh, you didn't tell them? No, I did. But I don't think if they were worried, they didn't. If I think I can really, I think my parents think that I'm really responsible. Okay, and I, and I think it's because I can, I can present information in a way that seems quite organized. Yeah. And so because of that, I, I don't think that they were worried. Hmm. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so yeah. then you went on tour with Meredith for a while. So I was teaching and I think that I were we rehearsed the show for about a year before we did it. And this was a paid job. Yeah, so That's we good. I was being yeah, so we were being paid for all our rehearsals time and everything. But um we rehearsed the show and I because I also if you you don't know Meredith's work yet so you should go listen to it but yeah. it's really uh, difficult to sing and I don't read music and so I also had to work with a voice coach for a that a very long time before our before our premiere I think I stopped working with her at, like basically when we started to when we premiered the work but it was like a it was like a sort of intensive period where we were rehearsing weekly and I also had my my voice coaching where I had to learn this music kind of by ear. She kind of taught me the rudiments of reading music so I could understand the very, very basics. And then Meredith just needed me to basically like be able to hold court because I was like singing with all these masterful singers mm. and I just needed to be able to keep my own. Yeah, I needed to be able to be confident enough and agile enough to just yeah make it <laughs> yeah yeah professional theater singer yeah. dancer <laughs> you so, made it well I, well she i got a lot of help and yeah. and i we all need help we all i, mean, I need yeah we, we needed help i needed a lot of help yeah um eventually after after we premiered that and we'd been kind of performing in different places then after my third year of teaching i applied for grad school and got in and then why did you I'm, decide to go to grad school I think because it was sort of like, so I spent five years after college, right? And I th I felt it was like slowly I was getting these tools and bringing them together and saying, oh, okay, this is, this is a vocabulary that I have yeah. that is, that I really can make something with. Yeah. And I think by that point I'd been working with Meredith and I was learning a lot about just like being in a company yeah. and just what that is yeah. and touring and, and then also learning a lot about the nuts and bolts working with kids mm -hmm. and putting on plays like that. And I think I really was, 
and then I got injured. So this is a whole another story. That it, From the dancing. I ended up doing my first solo show. And during that time I got injured. Oh, and that That's Fright, which was on, um, on my right. website. It was right before I did Fright. I got, I tore my Achilles tendon. Oh. So I had all of this time to reflect. And I decided that I really wanted to kind of absorb everything that I've learned these past five yeah. years and see and put it all in a pot and try to cook it a bit and see if anything came. And so I, grad school is the pot of cooking. Grad school is my pot mm -hmm. that I'm cooking in <laughs> that I needed to just not work for a while. Yeah. Not work, I mean, at a not have to be um, stressed out about a paycheck yeah. and just cook, just like cook for a while. Yeah. And develop and develop the vocabulary that I have only the beginnings of. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and is your your MFA is an interdisciplinary it's poetry? Inter or? Yeah, so it's it's so Brown has like a few tracks, and one of them is a cross disciplinary track where yeah. you work in. You can choose one discipline in the writing program and one discipline outside of the writing program. So I applied as a poet and a theater maker. Um, yeah. Okay. It's a it's a unique program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thought. Yeah, I, I mean, I applied for grad school at twenty seven too, and yeah, I mean, when I applied, it was sort of like I felt like I didn't take undergrad seriously. Yeah, or I didn't even know what art was, or yeah, and I felt like kind of like you, like I think at around twenty six, I was like, oh, I have all these tools I learned that are that were taught in school, mm -hmm. and I would like to like relearn. I want. I saw it as like a second chance. Yeah, totally. To like be more open and also come at it with a different mindset. Uh, totally, it's it was, it was really same thing. It's like same kind of education. I felt like hmm. you know you're in an institution. You're you're basically there, getting extra attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're older, which is a relief. Like what being well, being in college, you're like what eighteen, oh, yeah, yeah. making these decisions, and be, I don't know, which is fine, but. The decisions I make now is ten years later. So different. <laughs> That's what we were talking about, like having like a twenty-three-year-old in grad school. It's like it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, yeah. It's I wouldn't do it. Yeah, but people do choose to go through that way. And so then the the theater pieces, so all the stuff that you did, I saw on your website, or were those mm -hmm. happening concurrently with Meredith Monk stuff? Wait, how did, um, how did yeah, those? Okay. they did. I mean, the Meredith Monk stuff really was the most intense the first year. And then after that, once we started doing, sh once we, we hit a point where we didn't need to rehearse every week. Like we needed to rehearse every week for a year in order to really thoroughly learn the show and all of the music. And then there was a point where we really just needed to rehearse before right. we were going to have a performance. Yeah. So that, that gave me a lot more time to develop other work. And so- were, these were like presented in at in other theater shows separate from Meredith. Oh yeah, separate. Okay. Very, okay. very much so. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Totally just my own little thing. Okay. Small scale. <laughs> Everything I do is small scale. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder who I'm who I'm talking to. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. I, yeah. That's a good question for us all. Yeah. Yeah. And then what so what's your what are you working on while you're in yeah. this residency? So I'm working on the beginning of a new show. So my last solo show was Fright, and that was uh, about a year ago now. And I, I, the process, so I've made other shows that are in collaboration with folks, and that kind of process ends up being less lengthy. I think when I'm working on my own, I give myself a really a lot of time to develop work. And 
also after making that first solo piece. Which one was your first one? It was Fright. Fright. Oh, wait, but all the other things weren't? Aren't solo. Oh, oh, oh. Well, okay, uh, there actually is one more. Well, the, the um, Blue Monologue yeah. is a solo video work. And that also kind of happened over several years. Like mm. it started in actually in the Netherlands. Okay. And then I revisited it mm. in this fall when I was going to present it at like an experimental poetry festival thing. So I returned to it and re and did a bunch of new writing yeah. for it. So I guess that also is a solo work to some degree. But I worked with a collaborator. I worked with a filmmaker, mm. Lindsay Bloom, mm -hmm. on that project, who is incredible and, and, and is her own a filmmaker and makes really wonderful work. But, um, okay. When I made fright, I kind of started with, I started with Audre Lord quote. So you're right. I do really, I really do springboard out of language yeah. and it's a quote about, about fright it. as a country. Oh, you have it. Oh, cause it's on my website. Yeah. I was like, Oh, you know, this quote you too. Want to read it? Oh yes. Ah, Audre Lord. Brilliant. Embody your Audrey Lordness. <laughs> I, oh gosh, big st <laughs> high stakes. Okay, so the quote is: um, "Afraid is a country where they issue us passports at birth and hope we never seek citizenship in any other country. The face of afraid keeps changing constantly, and I can count on that change. I need to travel light and fast, and there's a lot of baggage I'm going to have to leave behind me. Jettison cargo." It's such a, it's such a great, I love, I think that's just so evocative. And when I read it for the first time, I thought I, oh, okay. When I read it for the first time, I remembered a character that had arisen in one of Lanny's workshop. And it was mm. the character of a fugitive that I had worked on and that I kind of, it had kind of remained in my memory without really, so I knew I was thinking about it. I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I read that quote and I thought, yes. There is a fugitive. The fugitive is escaping the country called Fright. Mm. And I want to make a show about this fugitive on the borderlands of the country of Fright and whatever it is that lies beyond. Mm. Who does the fugitive meet? Eventually, I had made the character. Well, the first character that I that I had met on that journey was um, the Bobcat. And then I met the shapeshifter, which is a kind of sh trickster character. It's a kind of genderless or gender switching character. And then I met, and I developed that one at a different residency. And then I met the last character, which was the dead woman. And so I put all of these four characters in dialogue, the fugitive, the bobcat, the shapeshifter, and the dead woman. So I kind of started with these, I feel like when with Fright, I started with, landscape and I started with these bodies uh -huh. and then I once I got into their bodies then I started to write from like this these places of persona yeah. almost I really loved fright actually and fright really changed after I got injured I had to remake it and that's a kind of a long story that I'm not sure if it's worth getting into but fright was really important to me because I had to really get to what was very essential about each of these characters yeah. and it was only 30 minutes about 35 minutes the show but what I've realized at the end of Fright was that I didn't really the writing in Fright was not as rigorously I didn't put it under the kind of rigorous pressure that I put the 
the physicality of the characters. Like I was really attentive to the physical life of the space that yeah. fright took place in and also, and how the characters lived in their bodies, yeah. which is of course really important. It's theater, but I didn't feel that the writing was as strong as, as the, the as the characters were bodily. Mm. And so when I'm starting, I'm starting this new project and I, I have no actual idea of the characters yet. I'm totally starting in the opposite way mm. where I am, I'm starting with basically I'm thinking about landscape. And so I actually, I didn't tell, I don't know if I told you this, I'm writing a syllabus or I just finished writing. You, a mentioned, you mentioned it. Yeah. I didn't get, you didn't tell me what happened after you finished it. Okay. Well, I, I'm writing the syllabus. I'm pulling it out just because it's useful to me. And I just finished writing it a few weeks ago before I came here. And it really, to me, is like the groundwork to the show, actually. I basically made a syllabus completely or just around my own interests and questions. That's the best. <laughs> so that maybe That's when I teach this fun. class. Yeah, well, because I genuinely have a lot to work out here. And so if I can work that out with a group of undergraduates, I think that would be fantastic. But I'm also working it out in my own space. I was going to read the quote from the first page. Yeah, so I start with a quote by the poet Camille Dungy, and she, this isn't from the anthology called Black Nature that she did. And she says, despite all these connections to America's soil, we don't see much African-American poetry in nature-related anthologies because regardless of their presence, Blacks have not been recognized in their poetic attempts to affix themselves to the landscape. They haven't been seen, or when they have, it is not as people who are rightful stewards of the land. They are accidentally or invisibly or dangerously or temporarily or inappropriately on in the landscape. Mm. And anyway, so I go on and, and I kind of have a, a lot of questions. So I, I don't have any answers. I have a lot of questions about how I situate myself in landscape, basically. And, and I think... The reason I came to this place is because it started in my like deep and profound fear of the dark mm -hmm. and, and, and how, and what that kind of meant for me when I went hiking or camping or just trying to be alone in the woods or, or other kinds of places, feeling like I'm encountering the trace of ghosts and trauma and violence and not knowing what to do with it. Mm. And then also kind of feeling like sometimes the woods would operate as this mirror and I would be like kind of working out this, uh, I don't know if it's inherited trauma or trauma from my own childhood that ended up getting like worked out in the woods in this way that I wasn't able to work it out with people. Mm. So it just became like the site of a lot of thinking and feeling through mm. painful stuff for me. Yeah, But I had, th I have these questions I'd like to read some of them. Yeah. Okay, so these are some of my questions about landscape and poetry, but... Okay, so are poems set on urban streets landscape poems? Can a poem shot through with mistrust of and alienation from the land and other natural bodies constitute a nature poem? How does memory, history, and trace haunt the ways we see the natural world? Are there reparative techniques we can use when listening to or interviewing land that witnessed or abetted centuries of subjugation? Um, how might we train our senses to perceive who is alighted or omitted from the poetic, photographic, or historical records of land? I ask about 
the normative gaze of the white man and and thinking about it as a light of the light of enlightenment mm-hmm. that it that I use it to guide myself into the forest and what would it mean to be in the dark? Yeah. So these are all questions that I came here hoping to address in my writing. And really what I'm doing is I'm just I'm just writing a ton and I'm trying to be as polyvocal as possible. I'm trying to write from as many different places in my body as possible from all of the the different ages that I am, Mm -hmm. like from my child self and from my fearful self and from, from my joyful self. And I also have been writing essays. I wrote an essay about the slash, which is, let's see. The the, human being? No, the slash (laughs) is such an evocative word though. (laughs) It's the boundary that's the U.S.-Canada border is called, the the slang is, it's called the slash. All along the U.S.-Canada border is called the slash. Yes. It's marked, it's marked, it's because it's marked by like a tract in the hillsides, which is 20 feet wide and over 5,500 miles long. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called the slash. I wrote a whole essay say about the slash in which I'd also talk about Catherine Yosef's a billion black mm. anthropocene yeah. who I find re- really instrumental to this yeah. thinking and that's um, why you sent me that essay too exactly she's thinking about how let's see what is her question she she ta- kind of talk she's also talking about grammar and how the non-living world how we think about the non-living insentient world and blackness are co-constituted yeah. modes of non-being mm-hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about that. I wrote an essay about that. I've been writing about dreams. I've been writing about my favorite beech tree mm-hmm. in the cemetery in a cemetery that I visit in Providence. I've been writing about Granny Nanny, who's this led, I think the earliest revolt, like slave revolt on the plantations in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And thinking about her, um, I've been writing about On Heat, which is that essay that we were discussing earlier and I wrote a bunch of questions for her yeah for that essay I've been writing some haikus I liked how the essay was kind of conflating heat in relationship to climate change in relationship to bodies and the transformation it's like total brilliance yeah I have questions for her um and for that essay that Mm. I hope to kind of maybe use in the future as prompts for myself and as I continue making this work. But anyways, the point is that um, I'm working backwards. I'm trying to work from a lot of text so that the text has the time to simmer and really get, really get put under that pressure as Mm -hmm. I co as I, in a, an, in a parallel space, we'll be also working on character and they're going to of course be in relationship to one another. They have to be. Yeah. I, I, but I just want to make sure that these voices are really juicy, you know? Yeah. And so, so I'm just starting from a place of like a lot of richness and a, and a lot of different, yeah. a lot of different modes of speaking and some of them very, some of them in an essay form and some of it very nonsensical, very associative, yeah. you know, and thinking a lot about this frozen river we're sitting next to and heat. And heat. Yeah. Cause I think that essay, I just poses some really great questions about like, um, yeah, like can we use descriptors of nature that are devoid of like the human? Cause I, I think a lot about how I look into the woods and I see, I see a mirror and I wonder how to unsee that mm. mirror if it's possible. Yeah. Also, she talks a lot about progression, progression versus transformation, which mm-hmm. I think is really fascinating. And 
whether progression, I think what is progression a falsehood? This all has to do somehow with, with my experience in nature. Mm. I haven't quite made sense of it all yet. Yeah. Well, right now we are in a place that's constantly changing. Yeah. From yeah, like a day that was like fifty degrees. Yeah, the other day I know and melted everything, and then now it's like so at zero. Yeah, it was flooding the other day, and now it's frozen over again. Yeah, those are good questions to post up also in this space. In this space, yeah, this space is a particular kind of (laughs) yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Do you, I mean, like you might have to, I mean, those questions, those might be difficult questions depending on who takes your class, right? Ah, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's going to be a very white class, I assume. So we're going to, I'm going to struggle thinking about how to talk about thinking with and through a black lens. Uh, You know, it takes a really, I had a, a, um, someone, so I was talking to this educator, Kevin Kwashi, this writer who's at Brown right now, and he was said something like, it takes a really astute, he was like, it takes a really astute brown person to write with and alongside a black lens, actually. Like, it take, we're, it, ha, it demands a kind of astuteness to figure out how, how to communicate these stories without creating further violence yeah. and harm and and what it means, to, like how to be reparative, like where, where, where there are opportunities to make reparations, where it's impossible, where yeah. we just need to honor, you know, whatever. It takes a really astute writer and thinker to do that yeah. of in, you know, black or white, yeah. especially a white person. Yeah. It, you know, so it demands a, a really a slowness and an attentiveness and a carefulness. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's going to be a challenge actually. And I'm really afraid. Like sometimes I'm afraid of like really, you know, just like, ex- like, you know, when you're 18 and you like really think you know everything and it's just going to be um, yeah. a challenge, I think. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm here to learn. So it wouldn't be helpful for me to not ask questions that I generally wanted to inquire, like make, ask, I, I want to ask the questions that are important to me. Yeah. Even if it's, you know, with, you know, with whoever it's with. Yeah. Um, so that might mean that I'm going to make myself very vulnerable and hopefully people, I have no idea what's going to happen. It might be a disaster. Who knows? I'm sending you all my good, good vibes. <laughs> well, I think that was, you think that's a good place to end? Sure. Yeah. Do you have yeah. anything, you want to plug anything or? No, absolutely no? not. <laughs> absolutely no not. Plug. No plug. <laughs> right. I want to thank Zewan uh-huh. for being such a lovely friend. Thanks for and, everything too. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the meditations in the morning. I know I'm going to miss yeah. you. Thanks for the chats and thanks for um, being on this podcast. Okay. Yeah. See you. See ya. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. 
This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.